Thanks for tuning in to the ICEF podcast. This episode is sponsored by First Pathway Partners, helping international students and their families obtain US residency for the EB5 visa program. But I would also briefly like to touch on, which I think is very important to understand and very relevant for the subject, is why EB5 is often the best, in reality, sometimes the only option available to international students. This and more in this new episode of the ICEF podcast, your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Thanks, Lucinda, and welcome back, everyone, to the ISEF podcast. My name is Martijn van der Veen, and as Lucinda mentioned, we are going to talk about visa options in the U.S. for international students and their families, our main topic this month. We will conclude the episode with our recurring Keys to the Market section, which this time zooms into Kuwait. But before we get to the main topic and to Kuwait, we'll spend the first minutes of this half-hour podcast highlighting some recent news and developments in our sector, as always, together with Craig Riggs, Editor-in-Chief of ISAFMonitor.com, the main market intelligence resource for the international education community. Craig, welcome back. Hi, Martin. Thanks. Very nice to be back with you. Same here, Craig. Now, um, we are all dealing with inflation. It's truly a global issue, and with the rapidly rising cost of living, most of us, if not all, are adjusting our buying patterns and are being more cautious with our spending. Obviously, this is the same for students. So I, I wasn't surprised, Craig, about the outcome of the recent ISAF Agent Voice survey showing that affordability is a rising factor in international students' choice of destination. Yeah, no, I don't think we should be surprised by it. I mean, this is one of those trends that has been very much accelerated by the pandemic. There has been a greater emphasis on affordability and on more affordable destinations for students for some time now. But but coming out of the pandemic, I think it's fair to say that that is looming much larger in study abroad planning for students, that in general, there's more price sensitivity and concern about affordability in the marketplace than we have seen before. And uh, as you say, this is a finding that comes to us from the ISEF agent voice sur uh, survey, which is a survey that has been in the field pretty much continuously over the last two years. And, you know, in results compiled through spring of this year, when we asked agents, you know, what were the most important factors for their students, the most important decision factors in planning for study abroad, cost of study and living expenses came in as the number one issue, like even, even a bigger factor than work opportunities during or after study, or even a, a bigger factor than availability of visas and visa processing, which are historically two really significant factors in student planning. So a, a new number one, I'd say, because I recall that recently we recorded a podcast episode on career being that number one decision-making factor. I mean, not to say that that's not important. You know, when students are looking at choice of destination, choice of institution, graduate outcomes, and career opportunities remain really significant factors. I think we can understand this to be a more immediate concern for students as they're planning for study abroad this year. And, you know, it's partly a factor of some of those global macroeconomic trends that you referred to earlier, you know, inflationary trends, currency movements and markets around the world. I think that's sharpening everybody's attention on affordability this year. And do you expect that this affordability factor will cause a significant shift towards alternative, probably more regional study destinations at the cost of more traditional 
study destinations such as the US, UK, Canada, and Australia? Yeah, we already see it as a factor. You know, there are, there are destinations uh, across Europe, for example, uh, across Asia, that are drawing greater numbers of international students. And in part, they may be closer to the students' home countries. So there's a convenience factor there and a comfort factor, but also because they're more affordable. You know, a part of what we were talking about on ISF Monitor this week is, you know, some of the more affordable study destinations around the world. You know, destinations like Germany, France, Malaysia, South Africa, right? So Africa is an example of a, of a global region that recruiters look at now as, as an area of significant growth potential. I mean, most serious institutions are actively researching or actively recruiting in, in Africa already. But part of the story of Africa is there's a huge amount of student mobility within the continent. And in particular, students moving to uh, countries like South Africa, and that affordability plays a plays an important part there. So yeah, I think it's hard to say at this point what this will mean in terms of shifting market share away from some of those other traditionally leading destinations that you mentioned. But I think it's fair to say that we should expect to see greater flows of students going to some of those more affordable regional destinations through the rest of this decade. Interesting. Now, to reduce spending is, of course, one way to deal with price hikes. Another one is simply to generate more revenues. So in that context, agency will surely warmly welcome this new incentive scheme provided by Western Australia, where, and correct me if I'm wrong, for each student placed into ADICAS and VET sector schools, the agency involved gets a 500 Australian dollar commission and a 1000 Australian dollar commission for each higher education enrollment in Western Australia. A very interesting approach, as I believe, Craig, that it's quite rare for governments to use public funds for such generous uh, agency commissions. Yeah, I think that's quite fair. It's, in fact, it's the only example that I can recall. <laughs> what we should say here is that this is specific to the state of Western Australia, home to Perth, where most of the population of that state lives. And so Perth would be the most recognizable study destination within the within the state, I think, for most listeners. The state government has set aside uh, just a little over 40 million Australian dollars as part of a plan to revitalize the international education sector in the state. Of that amount, 10 million Australian dollars are earmarked for the incentive scheme that you manage. And I think it's important to say that this is basically a top-up on commissions that agencies would normally receive from institutions and schools in the area. And so that $10 million, which is roughly equivalent to US $7 million, uh, is going to be paid out for referrals between September of this year and June 2023. And the scheme, it's capped at that $10 million. So first come, first serve. Part of what caught our attention about it was it's a, it's a very unusual step for uh, you know, a state or federal government to intervene in, in directly in commissions in that way. And it'll be interesting to see what role it plays in helping to boost or speed the recovery of international enrollment in the state. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Western Australia is also where the Australia-focused international education professionals will be meeting again next year in June at ISAF ANZA in Perth. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we look at visa options in the US for international students and their families. Being able to study overseas depends, as we all know, on many factors, such as language proficiency, entry exams, budget, accommodation, insurance, but especially on the ability to simply enter the destination country, the ability to get that much desired visa that actually allows you to study in the destination country, which is our main topic this month. 
Joining me are Bruna Canto, Managing Director, Latin America at First Pathway Partners, and Tadeu Ferreira, partner at Leave Law. Bruna, Tadeu, thank you so much for joining. You are both visa and immigration experts, and it would be great if you could get us started with a brief introduction of yourselves, please. Bruna. Hi, Martin. Thank you very much. So my name is Bruna Canto. I am the Managing Director for Latin America for First Pathway Partners. We are a regional center authorized by the U.S. Immigration Department, USCIS, to offer EB-5 projects for internationals looking to live in the United States through the EB-5 program. Right. And we'll explain the regional center and the EB-5 program in a bit more detail uh, later in this episode. Tadeu. Thank you, Martin. Uh, my name is Tadeu Ferreira. I'm the managing partner of Leaf Ferreira de Araujo, also known as Leaf Law. The firm was founded over 20 years ago, almost 25. We focus, specialize in business immigration, in addition to uh, servicing individual clients and organizations in the areas of, say, EB-5, investor visa. We also do extraordinary ability, national just waiver, and other related activities. Right. Thanks very much, Tadeo. To set the stage, uh, Bruna, can you walk us through some of the current visa options that are available to prospective international students? Sure. So obviously the first option is uh, the F1 visa, the international student visa, which only allows those who hold that visa to study in the United States and they're not able to work or do a lot of other activities. I specifically work with the EB-5 visa, which actually allows for applicants to obtain the green card, so permanent residence. This helps international students in a lot of ways. Already while they're studying, there are many benefits such as lower tuition costs, increased number of scholarships available to U.S. residents, higher acceptance rates to U.S. universities. And when they graduate, they are able to work anywhere and live in the United States, continue living in the United States. So the EB-5 sounds like a very attractive uh, option, and I'll have some more questions about that specific visa in a second. I just wanted to summarize the visa opportunities that exist in the U.S. Typically, there are indeed three student visa types. The one you mentioned, the F student visa, the academic student visa for study at an accredited U.S. college or university or to study English at an English language institute. The M visa, also known as the vocational student visa, rates to non-academic or vocational study or training in the United States. And the J visa, commonly known as the exchange visitors visa, is focused on a range of culture exchange programs. Now, you just mentioned the, the EB-5 visa, which I believe is not technically a student visa, but does provide indeed an alternative to enter the U.S. and the ability to study there. Tadioki, tell us a little bit more about this EB-5 visa. When was it created and what are the uh, conditions to apply for an EB-5 visa? So the EB-5 was created in the early 90s as an option to invest in a U.S. business for the purpose of creating jobs, minimum of 10 full-time jobs. And the visa has evolved since, and I'm, we're going to discuss that next. But I would also briefly like to touch on, which I think is very important to understand and, and very relevant for the subject, is why EB-5 is often the best 
in reality, sometimes the only option available to international students. So this is a point of contention for a very long time. There are a limited number of options in terms of non-immigrant, so something temporary to reside in the U.S., and people would obviously need to work in the U.S., and also to immigrate, which is the green card. So what often happens is the options that a recent graduate, say with a bachelor's degree, has to remain in the U.S. are very limited. Of course, this has improved recently with the STEM extension of the OPT, which allows for people to stay under the OPT as opposed to one year, which has been the case now for three years. But even accounting for that, the next step is always very challenging because a person, let's say, with one or three years of experience does not normally have the employment-based options of showing that they have a long career of success, <clears throat> that they have various accomplishments in the field, et cetera, which would allow them to what we call self-petition, meaning I have reached a certain standing in the field and I can self-petition to remain in the U.S. Their options are limited to sponsorship. So meaning a company would have to sponsor them for a position so that they can remain in the U.S., now, this option is normally the H-1B. Many, many years ago, the H-1B was not a bad option because the cap was seldom reached. But now, and we expect that in the future, the cap will be exceeded every single year. So the likelihood, even if you do find an employer who's willing to sponsor you, the likelihood that this application will be selected in the lottery is, I would say, less than 25%. And then what that also contributes to is making it more difficult for people to find sponsors because the sponsor is unwilling to go through the process knowing that even though we meet all of the requirements, the individual meets all of the requirements, it's up to chance. And it's actually less likely or say less than 50% that they'll be selected. So very often what we have seen in the past years is an increase in demand for the EB-5 because you know, someone that's investing and even thinking about, you know, the family, the family's investing in the child's education coming to the U.S. It's obviously, you know, requires a financial commitment, also family planning and all these things. I mean, I can also speak for myself. I went through this. I moved from Brazil to the U.S. when I was 18. Luckily, I had a green card that my parents gave me when I was younger. So I was lucky, but I studied and all of my international student friends face this issue. And I would say a majority of them were forced to leave because they did not have this option. So EB-5 actually became a good option for those people who are planning more long-term and want to offer this opportunity to their kids. I just want to clarify, I'm sure the majority of our audience knows what a green card is, but just want to highlight that it's officially the permanent resident card, an identity document that shows that a person has permanent residency in the United States. And green card holders are formerly known as lawful permanent residents, right? So that's, that comes with a lot of advantages. So you're stating that the EB-5 is so attractive, but we, of course, need to recognize that it has quite a price tag attached to it, uh, Bruna. Yes. So the new amount, which was recently approved by the U.S. government in March of this year, is $800,000. The amount in the past was 500000 for almost 30 years and for a long time it was there was a discussion in congress regarding changing this amount increasing this amount and this was uh, finally done this year 
And the 800,000, is that a one-time investment or is this spread over a specific time frame? Yes, normally the full amount needs to be invested before uh, the applicant is able to request the EB-5 visa. Right. And there are also some additional fees, which I like to say can go up to a, an additional $100,000, which are uh, the project's administration fee, immigration attorney fees, translations, and other miscellaneous fees. So we're going towards the $1 million needed, right, to get this started. Yeah, so I'd say about 900000 but the most important part is that the 800000 is an investment and it comes back to the investor. So uh, it is not an expense, only the additional, I'll say 100,000 are actual expenses. But as this is an investment, uh, the capital should come back to the investor and normally after at least five years. Right, so what we have here is a money-making opportunity for those that can afford it. And with that EB-5 come a lot of additional advantages. I believe it's, it allows for a green card for the whole family. I'm with whole family. I, bl I believe parents and two children. Is that correct? Actually, it includes all children under 21 that are not married. So applicant, husband or wife, and all kids, regardless of number, that are under 21 and unmarried. So the larger the family, <laughs> more benefits through one investment amount. If I can just add um, one interesting option for those people who say are investing in the EB-5 on behalf of a child who's, you know, in a U.S. university, what they can do is gift the money to the child. The child would then invest in the EB-5 and receive the green card in their name. And then in the future, once they become U.S. citizens, which is five years of green card, you're eligible to become a U.S. citizen. Once you become a U.S. citizen, you can then apply for a green card on behalf of your parents. So you could transfer that benefit of the green card to your parents, who could then transfer it to your other siblings. Of course, you can also apply for your sibling, but that takes about 15 years. There are other ways of planning that can do it faster. But the point is, even if you were to do it in your child's name, you could still extend the benefits looking mid-long term to the other family members. And is this EB-5 visa available to any nationality? Yes. So nationals of every country are eligible to apply for the EB-5 visas. Obviously, some countries have some difficulties transferring money out in order to make the investment, but there are no countries that are not qualified to apply for the EB-5 visa and always the same amount and the same rules independent where the applicant is from. Craig, how does this EB-5 visa opportunity in the US compare with visa options in other major study destinations? Yeah, it's a great question. I was just reflecting on what Tadeo was saying earlier, which I think is some really, really important context for our discussion about this program. The, the broader trend in the world amongst major study destinations is towards expanding postgraduate work opportunities and settlement opportunities for foreign graduates. We see that in Australia, for example, just in the last couple of months, there was a really significant expansion of postgraduate work opportunities for foreign students in Australia. We see the same in the UK. We see the same in Canada, where post-study work rights have been expanded. And also, Canada has tied its sort of longer-term 
immigration goals much more directly to foreign graduates than has been the case in the past. And so I think it would be fair to characterize that as a global trend amongst other leading destinations. We do not see the same policy movements in the U.S. It's really optional practical training, and there has been admittedly some expansion of that in the H-1B visa, which are the other pathways for students to pursue uh, postgraduate and, and subsequently settlement opportunities in the U.S. otherwise. And just this week, I was just reading an academic paper that was published uh, just this month that was talking about this very issue and highlighting that the U.S. retains actually only a very small percentage of foreign graduates. By the author's reckoning, 70% of master's students, 90% of bachelor's students leave the U.S. after graduation. And those are much lower retention rates than we would see in other major study destinations. And simply because there are no other channels by which students can pursue work opportunities or settlement opportunities in the U.S., right, outside of OPT and H-1B. That's the significance of the EB-5, is that it is an example of a policy instrument in the U.S. that opens up some additional settlement opportunities for graduates after they complete their studies. And there are direct counterparts in other countries, sort of immigrant investor programs, if you will. Uh, but I think the significance of it in the U.S. context is that it provides another important channel for students that wish to remain in the U.S., to work or even to settle in the U.S. after their studies, which are otherwise not available. Well, another factor that makes it very significant is that, according to Bloomberg, the EB-5 visa program has attracted more than 37 billion U.S. dollars in foreign investments since 2008. So I'm sure that this is a very attractive route for all those uh, involved. So, Brenna, as these students are going through the green card application process, can they already work and study during that process? Yes, yeah, so this is a recent change with the new program. In the past, uh, applicants for the EB-5 program had to wait for the process to actually be approved in order to obtain residency and be able to work and have all the benefits of per permanent residence. With the new program approved in March of this year, applicants for the EB-5 program are able to concurrently file for adjustment of status, which means that they're able to obtain work authorization within a few months. Currently, some applicants for adjustment of status are receiving work authorizations in as little as four to five months. So this is a game changer, especially for international students already living in the United States because they can remain in the United States apply for EB-5 with adjustment of status and be able to work in as little as a few months. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brenna and uh, Tadeo, for your contributions. And this is really interesting to hear more details about these uh, visa opportunities. If anyone wants to learn more about this and connect with uh, Tadeo or Brenna, then please send us an email at podcast at ISF.com. Coming up, keys to the market, where this month we focus on Q8. But first, a message from our sponsor, First Pathway Partners. First Pathway Partners, known as FPP, specializes in helping foreign nationals obtain U.S. residency through the EB-5 visa program. FPP has been authorized as a regional center by the U.S. Immigration Department since 2008, being one of the oldest and most experienced in the EB-5 industry. We take care of the entire process, managing our clients' investments and immigration requirements. FPP has assisted hundreds of immigrant investors through the EB-5 visa program from all over the world. 
FPP is one of few regional centers to have obtained various permanent green card approvals and redeemed investors' full capital contributions on various projects, placing us in the highest category of EB-5 industry achievement. With our experience, investors can be confident in our ability to make their immigration and investment journey both secure and worry-free. And now for the final section of this episode, it's Keys to the Market, and this month's focus is Kuwait. Kuwait is a country in the Middle East situated in the northern edge of eastern Arabia, the tip of the Persian Gulf, bordering Iraq to the north and Saudi Arabia to the south. Kuwait holds 8% of the world's oil reserves and is the fifth richest country in the world by gross national income per capita. Arabic is the official language of Kuwait, but English is widely spoken, and although it's a relatively small country with 4 million inhabitants, some 25,000 Kuwaiti students study overseas with the US and the UK as their favorite study destinations. Greg, at 25,000 students overseas on a population of 4 million, that's quite a high ratio, one student abroad for every 160 Kuwaitis. Wealthy neighbor Saudi Arabia, for example, that ratio is one per 580, 60,000 students abroad on a population of 35 million. So which factors contribute to this relatively high Kuwaiti international student ratio? Well, a few that our listeners will recognize as like important factors in terms of driving market demand. One is that you have a large and growing college age population in the country, both Kuwaiti citizens and also expat. The Kuwaiti economy is largely driven by a large expat population that represents about two thirds of the workforce. So Kuwait is one of those markets where, you know, you can aim to recruit uh, citizens, but also expats that are living in the country. And between those two pools, there's a large and growing college age population in Kuwait. The other factor that plays in here is very high demand for higher education among those students. The country has insufficient capacity in terms of its domestic higher education system to meet that demand, and so students are encouraged to go abroad for studies. And the final factor is they're encouraged in part to go abroad through a very generous government scholarship program that's administered through the Ministry of Higher Education and that provides substantial funding for students to pursue their degree programs abroad. Kuwait is primarily, I should say, an undergraduate degree market. So for institutions that are that are offering bachelor degrees, this is a good fit market in that respect. And I guess that would also contribute to the fact that so many Kuwaiti students go study overseas is simply the wealth of the country and the English language proficiency. Absolutely. Certainly many Kuwaiti families can have the means to send their students abroad, but also the wealth of the country. I mean, Kuwait is, is to no one's surprise, Kuwait's economy is also dominated by the oil and gas sector. So it's one of these markets where you have very prevalent oil and gas sector and significant scholarship programs, you know, that are supported by oil and gas revenue, essentially. So between self-funding students and what is essentially a very generous scholarship program that doesn't have, there's no limitation on the number of scholarships that are available, those are factors that are really driving that high ratio of, of, of outbound student mobility that you described earlier. And what can you tell us about their favorite study destinations? I mentioned the US and the UK, but I also noticed Jordan in the top three. Yeah. So roughly two thirds of outbound Kuwaitis go to the US or the UK. As you mentioned, there are about plus or minus 25,000 Kuwaiti students abroad, primarily abroad in higher education now. That number has been pretty stable, actually, over the last four or five years, right? So we're not seeing dramatic growth 
But I think because of those underlying factors that we've been talking about, that large college-age population, the very generous scholarship program, the ability of Kuwaiti families to send students abroad otherwise, we should expect to see continued growth in Kuwait over the rest of this decade. You know, unlike some of the other markets that we've looked at in this segment, I don't think it's a market where you would just jump on a plane and go to Kuwait and that would be your focal point in the region as a recruiter. But I think it's a very interesting market if your institution or school is already active in the Middle East and you're traveling in that region and building partnerships in that region already in Saudi Arabia and otherwise, Kuwait is a really interesting market to tack on to that effort for all these reasons that we're discussing today. For those interested to connect with Kuwaiti study abroad agencies, you can find them at our global networking event, ISAF Berlin at the end of October, at some of our destination events, such as ISAF San Diego in December, and of course at ISAF Dubai in February next year, which brings together the agencies from across the Middle East and Northern Africa. For a full overview of all our upcoming events, you can of course visit isaf.com slash events. Thanks as always, Craig, and thanks again, Bruna and Tadeu, for your valuable contributions, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Should you wish to connect with Bruna or Tadeu, as mentioned, you can email us via podcast at isaf.com. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. Thanks for tuning in to the ICEF podcast. This episode was sponsored by First Pathway Partners, helping international students and their families obtain US residency for the EB-5 visa programme.